It was the summer of 1987. A serial killer once stalked the streets of El Paso, Texas. The bodies of six teenage girls and young women were found buried in the desert of northeast El Paso. All of them had gone missing earlier that year. Eyewitnesses led police to the same man, a man with a criminal past. David Leonard Wood was convicted of their brutal murders and sentenced to death. But 33 years have passed and the victims' families continue to wait for justice to be enacted. Wood remains on death row, all the while insisting he isn't guilty. What if he didn't do it? You're telling me now that the day comes that you're executed and an innocent man is going to die? There's no doubt. Yes. Yes. The detective who investigated the case is convinced of Wood's guilt. Over and over, I'll tell you, there's no doubt that he did it. There's no doubt in my mind he did The mother of one of the youngest victims waits to see the day Wood is held accountable. I promised Desi at her gravesite, I will find out who did this and they will be prosecuted. That was a promise and I want to keep that promise. And a jury believed beyond a reasonable doubt that Wood committed the crimes. But Wood has maintained his innocence throughout, and his attorney claims there is scientific proof lingering on possibly dozens of pieces of evidence that will not only clear Wood's name, but also point to the real desert killer. Deaths in the Desert, a serial killer's personal graveyard, in this episode of ABC 7's Borderland Crimes, sponsored by University Medical Center. I'm Gina Orozco, and I help women in our community at UMC's Women in Teen Center. If you have any questions or just need information about free pregnancy tests or counseling, call 521-2220. At UMC, we care for El Paso. June 2nd, 1987, the last day of school. 15-year-old Desiree Autumn Wheatley woke up excited. Eighth grade was hours from being over and high school beckoned. Desiree wanted to document her final moments at H.E. Charles Middle School in Northeast El Paso. We locals call it the Northeast. She dug out a clean white t-shirt from the laundry basket and pulled it on. Her goal was to get as many of her classmates' signatures on it as possible. And she grabbed her camera, but realized she didn't have film. She usually let her mom, Marcia, sleep in since she worked late nights. But that day, Desiree knew she had no choice. And then she wakes me up at like 6 a.m. and says, Mom, we got to go get film for my camera. And I said, why? She says, it's the last day of school. I want to take pictures. Okay, so I took, got up, took her to, I think it was three different stores before we could find the film for her camera because every other one was sold out. And finally we got the film. I was driving, I was almost home. And she says, no, you can let me out here, Mom. You know, which was like a block from the school. I said, you sure? She goes, oh yeah, I'm fine. So she gets out and she starts walking and she turns around and she says, thanks, Mom, I love you. And I said, I love you too. And those were the last words we spoke to each other. I thank God every day that that was our last conversation. 
Marcia Fulton holds on to that memory, randomly replaying it in her mind. She was probably one of the most unique people I've ever met. <laughs> and she just, she was a very trusting person. She come home one day and said, Mom, she goes, what does gullible mean? And I said, well, that just means you believe everything somebody says. And she come home and she says, I was voted most gullible again. <laughs> and I'm going, yeah. I mean, she didn't lie, okay? And she didn't think anyone else did. And that was her downfall. When the school bell rang for the final time that year, Desiree embraced her new freedom. She hung out with friends, first at their homes, and then at their regular hangout, the ditch near Veterans Park, down the street from her house in northeast El Paso. She returned home for dinner, eating with her elder sister Sunday and her grandparents, before heading out again for the evening, this time meeting friends at the Circle K across the park, down the street from her house. Marcia, Sunday, and Desiree lived with Marcia's parents. Marcia was a single mom and needed help watching the girls while she worked. When Desiree's 8 p.m. curfew rolled around, she called her grandmother, pleading for an extension. School was out for summer, and she just wanted to stay out until 10, like Sunday. Her grandmother agreed. 10 o'clock came and went. Sunday came home. Desiree did not. I got home from Rockwell at 2 a.m. Uh, my mom met me at the door, and she said, "Desiree hasn't come. Desi hasn't come home yet." And I said, "Well, what time was she supposed to come home?" She goes, "Well, she called, and I gave her an extension on her curfew to 10 because, you know, last day of school." And she said she'd be there. So. When that happened, the first thing I thought was, this is not right. Marcia called police, thinking something must have happened to her young teen. The police didn't share her concern. They told Marcia Desiree likely ran away from home. And the police officer said, well, look, ma'am, you know, the parents are always the last to know. And I said, sir, you don't call for an extension of your curfew to run away. You just don't. And he says, well, we've had a look to here, you know, with teenagers today, tonight, because, you know, last day of school, they're all acting up. <laughs> and I said, look, I know my daughter. If she had run away, she would have left me a 10 by eight foot sign that said, mom, I've run away and don't look for me here, you know. <laughs> she was that kind, you know. She, she did not want to go quietly into the night anytime, you know. So I told the cops, I said, please, you don't understand. I know my daughter. And they kept insisting that parents are the last to know. Simply retelling the story, even 33 years later, caused Marsha's dark brown eyes to narrow. I am frustrated and I was frustrated because how do you get somebody's attention when 
they're not talking to you. Hours slipped by. Each tick of the clock further convinced Marcia that her 15-year-old daughter was in danger. And I was waiting for the other shooter. Every time the phone would ring, I'd be peeling me off the ceiling, you know, because I just knew, you know, it was going to be bad news. Three days had passed since Desiree disappeared. Marcia picked up a newspaper and spotted an article about a missing 20-year-old woman named Karen Baker. Karen, a mother of three young children, was last seen leaving the Hawaiian Royale Motel on Dyer Street, roughly five miles from Marcia's neighborhood. She noted on the coincidence that Desiree and Karen went missing days apart from the same side of town. Marcia called the newspaper editors. Maybe they could report on the disappearance of her daughter. And she also wondered, could the reporter put her in touch with Karen's family? Marcia and Karen's mom, Mary Baker, connected, bonded by their fears over their missing children. I said, well, I wonder how many other girls are missing. And we started hearing from other people that their daughters disappeared too. Before Desiree and Karen, there was 14-year-old Marjorie Knox. She was reported missing on February 14, 1987. Marjorie lived in Chaparral, New Mexico, which is a tiny community that is only separated from the northeast El Paso desert by the state line. Marjorie was visiting friends in the northeast and never returned home. There was also 14-year-old Melissa Alanis, who went missing March 7th. Get this. Melissa and Desiree both attended Charles Middle School. And on June 28th, nearly four weeks after Desiree and Karen vanished, another teenager was reported missing. 19-year-old Cheryl Lynn Vasquez Dismukes was last seen at a convenience store in the Northeast. Days turned to weeks, and weeks stretched into months. There was still no sign of Desiree, Karen, Marjorie, Melissa, or Cheryl. Marcia was outraged that five young women and girls had gone missing in the span of four months from roughly the same area. She felt the police showed no sense of urgency to solve the mysteries. We had protests on the bridge downtown. Me, Mary Baker, and a few other of the mothers, like, where are our children? you know, because we weren't getting any answers. They, they were all classified as runaways. And, and, and nothing we said was convincing the police, so they weren't even looking. And I even asked the officer one time, the, that night that she disappeared, I said, well, why is she a runaway? And he said, because she's She's out of, she's not at home, uh, and she should be, you know, and it's, you know, she's made that concerted effort not to be at home. And I said, well, what if she doesn't want to be away from home? And I said, what happens then? What, when you find her body, you'll say, oh, I'm sorry that that's happened. Marcia's ominous prediction soon morphed into reality. 
On September 4th, three months after Desiree disappeared, a couple of utility workers were evaluating a plot of land in the northeast between Dyer Street and McCombs. The remote desert area was seemingly vacant, except for a long stretch of telephone poles and desert scrub. But one worker spotted something that seemed out of place. He approached what he saw sticking out of the ground and realized it was a human body. The worker frantically called for help. Police investigators unearthed the partially decomposed remains. The crime scene photos show a small framed body face down in a shallow grave. One hand, fingers outstretched, feet bare, light-colored moccasins buried nearby, a light blue top, flowy floral shorts. Police expanded the search radius and brought in canines. 30 to 50 feet away, they came across another shallow grave. A woman wearing red pants and a denim jacket, clothing that was last worn by Karen Baker. Karen Baker's mom, Mary, called and said, did, they, did the police call you? I said, no. And she said, they called me, they found Karen's body. And I said, oh God. And they found a second one, but I don't know who it was. Marcia was frantic, thinking that the second set of remains belonged to Desiree. Her repeated calls to police did little to calm her fears, so she and Cindy went to the police department. Despite the fact that police uncovered two bodies of young women just days earlier, the detective she met that day was stunningly dismissive, judging by his summary of their visit. He asked Sunday if Desiree had a split personality because she liked to make up tall tales to get attention from other kids, and described Marcia as exhibiting the normal parental practice of portraying her daughter of being more exceptional than she is. What finally pushed El Paso police to more actively scrutinize Desiree's disappearance actually had nothing to do with Desiree. It had to do with a young woman by the name of Maria Gasio. In August of 1987, Maria, who also went by Janet, arrived in El Paso from Dallas. The 24-year-old wanted to visit family in Juarez, the Mexican city directly south of El Paso, and she figured she could also cross over the border into El Paso and check in with her friends at the club where she once worked as a topless dancer. On August 12th, Gasio told her family she was going to El Paso for the evening and would be back late, but she didn't return. Her family was worried and confused. She wouldn't have just not come back for her plane ticket or her clothing. Casio's parents contacted police in El Paso. Some of her friends in Juarez put officers in touch with the friends she visited. Police detective John Guerrero realized that Casio's family had no idea about their daughter's days as an exotic dancer, but also that something was off. We talked to the girls, um, and uh, they all say, yeah, as a matter of fact, she was here. We thought she had gone back to Dallas, because nobody's seen her heard from her since. Guerrero also realized that Gasio might not be gone on her own free will. Her friends told Guerrero the night she went missing, they had seen Gasio hanging out with a guy at the club. Un, un güero, un güero, un loco, un güero loco, you know. So, un gringo. 
and so we we find out that that there's this unknown white guy that uh, kind of looked like a biker. The last night that they saw her, that this guy was there, and that um, he and Janet walk out, and then they make a right uh, to where Janet's car was parked. They're gone. The white guy, the Anglo guy, and Janet are gone. Turns out Gacio's car was found abandoned near the club August 13th, the morning after she went missing. Fast forward three weeks when police found the bodies of two women. They knew one set of remains belonged to Karen Baker, but they didn't know who the other woman was. Detective Guerrero took a chance, reaching out to Janet's family in Juarez, telling them he might have found her, but needed their help to be sure. We have no medical records for Janet Casio at all, none whatsoever, because she grew up and lived in Juarez and there was no, no, no dental records, no nothing that we could compare. We, we bring the family to the United States and, and uh, we go to the morgue, but you know the bodies are somewhat decomposed because they've been out there for a while. But we show the clothing and jewelry, and the mom says, that's, that's my daughter's, that's, there's no doubt about that. Victim number two was identified. Marcia was at her wit's end. Her 15-year-old daughter Desiree had vanished without a trace June 2nd. Two young women had turned up dead in the desert in early September. And yet, the detective assigned to Desiree's case continued to paint her youngest child as a troubled runaway. So when she learned about Guerrero's work identifying Casio's body, she reached out to him for help. And then she called me one day. And she said, I want to talk to you. I think that there's a bunch of girls missing up in Northeast. Marcia told him not just about Desiree, but also about Desiree's schoolmate, Melissa Alanis, Marjorie Knox, and Cheryl Lynn Vasquez Dismukes. I left there convinced that, that something, you know, that, that she was right, that something had happened to her daughter. He was good. He started all over. He told me, he says, you know, he says, I don't know what they did with this. This, this you know, it's all crap, this whole file. So he started from scratch. And, you know, he was right there, 100%, letting me know what's going on. And I appreciated that to no end, because that's not how it was working before. Police expanded their search in the desert, wondering if there were more secrets that needed to be unburied. We called in the National Guard, police officers, um, a bunch of people that were, were not working that day. And so what we did is that we formed this line in the desert. They scoured the area for weeks. On October 20th, Officer Ramiro Gonzalez and his police canine bear were about 50 yards away from where Casio and Baker's bodies were buried when Bear suddenly caught wind of something unusual. He made his way to a shrub and stuck his snout in a hole. Bear pawed at the ground and Gonzalez watched it crumble beneath him. He joined Bear digging until he realized he uncovered another grave. The skeletal remains face down in the dirt. 
Police uncovered two graves that day. A police officer called Marsha. Mrs. Wheatley, she, he said, you know, could you come down to the station and maybe bring like a hairbrush or something that might have Desi's hair in it and maybe um, some clothing or something that we can get some DNA out of? And I said, yeah. Oh, could you also bring your oldest daughter with you? Sure. So, you know, I'm thinking, okay, they're really going to investigate this now. So I walk in, you know, and I'm sitting there and we're talking back and forth, a little bit of, um, you know, small talk. <laughs> then he comes up and he goes, uh, Mrs. Wheatley, um, we found two more bodies. Marcia recalls the information simply, without emotion, perhaps protecting herself from reliving the awful moment she realized the search for Desiree ended in the desert. He says we collected clothing. Well, she was skeletal remains at that time, but they collected the clothing that was in the grave. And the clothing consisted of her pants, her socks, her bra, and the t-shirt she wore to school that day with all the signatures on. Even as she stared at the shirt Desiree used to collect her classmates' signatures on the last day of school nearly five months earlier, Marcia was in denial. And then I saw the socks and there was that was it. Because she wore her socks, let's just say differently. <laughs> she would have socks on and she would roll them all the way down to her ankle. No matter what size they, you know, if they were long, short, anyway, so, and both socks were rolled down. And I said, yeah, that's, that's probably her clothing. So that was the other shoe dropping? That was the other shoe dropping. Everyone feared a serial killer was in our midst. In six months, Six bodies were found in that expanse of northeast El Paso desert. They belonged to Karen Baker, Maria Janet Gasio, Desiree Wheatley, Don Smith, Angelica Frausto, and Ivy Williams. Don Smith's remains were found the same day as Desiree's. In June, the 14-year-old had run away from her home in the northeast, but friends and family had kept in contact with her until she dropped off the radar late August. Her mother reported the Parkland High School student missing in September. Angelica Frausto's skeletal remains were unearthed November 3rd. The 17-year-old didn't live with her family in central El Paso, going home only to bathe and change clothing. She often hung out at local bars and clubs and was last seen near the end of July. Williams's badly decomposed body was discovered March 15, 1988, by people looking for discarded aluminum cans. The 23-year-old's bones were found nearly 500 yards from the mass burial site. Her remains, only identifiable by dental records, braces remained affixed to her teeth. Bleached bones indicated to the medical examiner that she had been exposed to the elements for some time. Williams worked as a topless dancer and a prostitute. She was a familiar face to El Paso police officers. The last documented encounter was April 25, 1987, 
She was being arrested for heroin possession and kicked at a police officer. To this day, the whereabouts of Marjorie Knox, Melissa Alanis, and Cheryl Vasquez Dismukes remains unknown. Now, police had to put the puzzle together. Eight of the nine women and girls whose disappearances were linked to the investigation had a connection to the Northeast, all except Janet Casio. Frausto, Williams, and Baker all frequented the Hawaiian Royale Motel on Dyer Street. In fact, it's one of the last places Baker was seen alive. Plus, Williams, Frausto, and Casio all worked in men's clubs. Expanding the scope, Alanis, Wheatley, and Vasquez Dismukes were at one point students at Charles Middle School in the Northeast. Detective Guerrero turned his sights on the school to find any overlap between the girls. He was friends with the principal, Paul Strelzin. So, you know, he was really upset that that was happening to his kids. And so um, he gave us this room and we started interviewing people, you know, started interviewing kids and kids. And, and you know, like most kids, uh, we didn't get too far, you know, at first. but. Then when, you know, the, the five girls are found and we've got a bunch of missing girls out there and all that, and we start finding out that, that uh, it was in June, so sometime prior to June, maybe January, February, somewhere in there, um, this, this weirdo, this creepy guy, this um, scary guy starts coming around. Um, he starts offering the kids uh, marijuana, beer, cigarettes. We, we pick up on a, on a nickname, and that nickname was Skeeter. He would introduce himself to all the kids as Skeeter all the time, you know, Skeeter this, Skeeter that. And um, he'd show up on his motorcycle and he'd say, look, I'm going to be back, back in a little while. I'm going to go get some joints, we're going to smoke some joints. But all of them thought he was creepy. And then number two, he was older than they were, you know, quite older than they were. I mean, sure, of course, that was a red flag. You know, there's something, something's just not right. Some of the kids told police they had heard stories about Skeeter, that he had been in prison, that Skeeter might be dangerous. Who is Skeeter? And is he behind the disappearances and murders? I asked Detective Guerrero how they were able to put a name and a face to Skeeter, and quite honestly, I was surprised by the answer. We are able to identify that Skeeter is David Leonard Wood. So how did now, that happen? How did well, that happen? Um, uh, there was a guy that was in the military that I don't remember how we, we, we got a hold of him. I believe his last name was Montoya, something like that. Anyway, he and David were friends. And I can't, you know, it's been such a long time ago, I can't make the connection, but through friends and associates, we finally come up with Skeeter, this guy that's going around telling everybody he's Skeeter, his real name is David Leonard Wood. 
It was hard for me to accept that time could dim the aha moment that came from breaking open the most prominent murder investigation in modern El Paso history, but it had been a long time. So I poured over hundreds of police documents to try to glean more details of how police connected Wood and Skeeter. And I don't know when exactly the following part of the investigation happened, or if it's even how detectives made the link. But this is what is listed on a police summary of events dated October 29, 1987, before all the victims were found. Detective Guerrero asked Circle K management for permission to interview employees who were on duty when Desiree was known to be at the store. One employee said she didn't know anything about Desiree, but she did know something about the disappearance of her friend, Vasquez Dismukes. The day Vasquez Dismukes disappeared, she said she was going to get some pot from a guy named David Wood. Guerrero does remember what he did once he heard that name. And of course, the first thing cops do, you know, we run a name check. And we find out that he had just been released from prison, Texas Department of Corrections. And I'll give you $100 if you can guess what the offense was. Right. David Leonard Wood had been sentenced to 20 years in prison in 1980 for sexually assaulting two young girls. But he was released far earlier, in January 1987. At the age of 30, he was living with his father in Northeast El Paso, in fact, across the street from Charles Middle School and three blocks away from the Circle K where Desiree was last seen. Looking at mugshots of Wood, a white man with dark blonde hair and hazel eyes, Guerrero saw a man who fit the eyewitness descriptions of the person last seen with Karen Baker, Cheryl Vasquez Dismukes, and Janet Gasio. Guerrero went back to the Northeast and again spoke to kids who were with Desiree June 2nd. He showed them Wood's mugshot in a six-person lineup. They all identified him as Skeeter. Two friends divulged more information to police. They saw Desiree and Wood leave the Circle K together. Guerrero describes what he was told. He says, I turned around and I looked to say goodbye to Desiree, and I see her getting into the truck with Skeeter. And then they take off. And he says, that's the last time I saw her. I've never seen her since then. But the other friend who told police she saw Desiree get into Wood's truck hadn't mentioned that crucial detail in either of her previous interviews, and she had spoken to police twice before. But she didn't reveal that information until after Desiree's body was found and after she was shown a picture of Wood. Why didn't she say something sooner about the last time she saw Desiree alive? She didn't want to tell police, she said, because she feared Skeeter was dangerous and she thought he would hurt her. Detective John Guerrero was already looking into David Leonard Wood when he was alerted to another case that might connect to the desert killings, a rape. Police knew the victim. Judy Brown was a prostitute who worked parts of Northeast El Paso. Downtown Judy, as she was known, had also been arrested for drug possession, but this time she was asking for help. Judy went to the police late September or early October, saying she had been sexually assaulted. Judy didn't know exactly when it happened, 
but she knew it was between July 26th and August 7th. She was also sure her attacker had driven her to a spot in the desert where investigators were finding women's bodies, and that she would know him if she saw him. Can you identify the guy? She says, yes, I can. Um, we don't show her a picture at that time. And um, can you describe him? She describes him almost to the T. Can you take us to where he took you? She goes, yep, I know exactly where he took you. I get in the detective car, and we ride out. And up on Dyer, turn here. And we turn, and, it, and it's called, it, was used to, it used to be called a telephone pole road, because there's a whole bunch of telephone poles there, and it's a dirt road. Mm -hmm. And then there's some great big slabs of cement. And she says, turn to the right. And we turn to the right. She says, go a little bit further. And she goes, I can't tell you the exact spot, but it's somewhere right around here. And we're probably 100 yards, 150 yards from where the other kids were taken. So what she tells us is that he drives her to the desert and that from the back of the truck, he pulls out this blanket and that he throws the blanket on the floor. And then she said that for whatever reason, she, she got this creepy feeling about the guy. And I don't remember 100%, but I think he said she mentioned something about tying her up or something like that. And so she's naked, and the guy is now attempting to rape her. Um, and something spooked him. He heard something. And he stops, and... Um, he got away from her. So when he does that, she took off. And she was butt naked. So we show her a photo item. She positively identifies him. Judy identified her attacker as David Leonard Wood. But it wasn't until October 24th that police issued a warrant for Wood's arrest in the rape. He thinks that he's under arrest for the little kids. And then I tell him no. Mr. Wood, you're under arrest for the attempted rape of, of uh, Judy, downtown Judy. Uh, and then he goes, oh, that fucking shit, man. He says, shit, that's a damn, that's a damn cocaine deal that went bad, bro. I said, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, she got in the car. I told her we would go out to the desert. We were going to do some cocaine. I didn't have the cocaine, and she got all pissed off. I'll put that in writing. Sure. Take the statement down, put it in writing. But what that does is that that places him in the desert where all these kids have disappeared. Shortly after his arrest, police did something that seems highly unorthodox by today's standards. It was decided by the, the powers that be at the time, although everybody in the Crimes Against Persons office begged them not to please do that because we didn't think we were ready yet. But... Um, it was decided that there was going to be a press conference and that the, uh, the suspect was going to be, you know, revealed and what have you. The suspect was revealed, but yet not. Police instead announced that they had made an arrest in a rape that happened in the desert near where four bodies were found and that the man suspected of the rape was David Leonard Wood. But here's the weird thing. 
police clearly wanted to reassure the community they were on to the guy responsible for the serial murders gripping the community, but they didn't make the connection. And when reporters asked if Wood was also a suspect in the desert killings, they said no. However, several news outlets made the connection anyway, citing sources in the department that said Wood was indeed a suspect in the serial killings. Imagine the media frenzy as Wood stood trial for rape in March of 1988. Police were uncovering the sixth body, that of Ivy Williams. Wood remained defiant and even aggressive, at one point attacking Guerrero. When we were bringing him over to the courtroom one day, he pulled away from one of the deputies and he charged at me and lunged at me with the shoulder and kicked me. And, and that's when he told the deputies that, Fucking Guerrero, I'm gonna kill you one of these days. If I ever get out, I'm gonna fucking kill you. Wood was ultimately convicted and sentenced to 50 years in prison for Judy's rape. Wood was two years into his prison sentence when he learned that a grand jury indicted him on six counts of murder in connection to the desert deaths. That happened in July 1990 three full years after Desiree Wheatley disappeared. Her mother, Marsha, went to 27 pretrial hearings before she says Wood's defense asked the judge to keep her out, saying she was a safety risk to their client. She laughs at the notion, but there is certainly no love lost between Marsha and David Leonard Wood. She still remembers the first time she saw him in person, walking into court, shackled, wearing an orange prison jumpsuit. You know, they had him walking out like he was some big shot. I don't know. He blew me a kiss. And something, someone, did he just blow you a kiss? I said, yeah. I said, that guy's sick. And his attorneys really got on him for that. Don't you ever interact with her again. So every time he'd be in there at a pretrial hearing, he'd, I'd be front and center. You know, and he'd go. Marcia mimics him. She throws her head back and rolls her eyes, scoffing loudly. You know, because I was the only one that wasn't going to let it go. You know, this woman ain't ever going to leave. No, I'm not. You know, you took something precious from me. That's not going to be like, eh, go ahead. No, uh-uh. that won't ever, ever happen as long as I'm alive. Marcia turned her loss into action, pushing for change within the El Paso Police Department. The department reformed the Youth Services Division. That's a division Marcia turned to for help finding Desiree and whose detectives labeled her teen daughter a runaway. So now that, has, that rule has been changed. Now they, they take a runaway, and, and if it, parents go, no, 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 they investigate. If it's an 18-year-old and over, the police investigate. Wood pleaded not guilty to the six murders, maintaining his innocence, saying that there was nothing tying him to the women, the crimes, or the desert graveyard, accusing police of making him a scapegoat, even suing the department. His attorneys pushed for the case to be moved. The path to a fair trial was wrought with obstacles. Wood's name had been in the news for years, associated with the desert deaths, even though he hadn't been charged with the crimes until 1990. 
The entire city had been riveted by each new development in the case, learning the names, faces, and stories of the victims. Wood's defenders and detractors even debating each other in the newspaper, sending passionate letters to the editor pleading for justice. Kids across the city changed their after-school routines, rarely traveling home alone. Parents in Northeast neighborhoods gathered in school cafeterias, demanding answers from police on how to keep their children safe. David Leonard Wood, in his own words, from his prison cell. You're listening to Borderland Crimes. I'm Stephanie Valle. I'm Gina Orozco, and I help women in our community at UMC's Women in Teen Center. If you have any questions or just need information about free pregnancy tests or counseling, call 521-2220. At UMC, we care for El Paso. The capital murder trial of David Leonard Wood was moved away from El Paso to Dallas, Texas. But it didn't begin until 1992 a painfully long time for Marsha Fulton. It was five years, five years of pulling teeth to get this case going, you know, so, and I could never understand why it took so long. They had all the evidence they knew, you know. KVIA TV News sent reporter Patty Aguayo to Dallas. She filed this report for KVIA's broadcast the first day of trial. She laid out the prosecution's case, Wood's defense, and a timeline tying everything together. On October 21st, prosecutors began to call to the stand a number of witnesses, including police, a rape victim, and convicted felons for one reason, to try to prove that the Northeast Desert became the personal graveyard of David Leonard Wood in the summer of 1987. Wood's attorneys countered the attack by presenting evidence and testimony to show their 35-year-old client is simply a scapegoat in the city's biggest homicide investigation. Jurors in the capital murder case did not hear testimony from any eyewitnesses. Prosecutor Karen Shook said from the very beginning the case is solely circumstantial. What jurors did learn is who, when, where, and how the six victims were found buried in shallow graves. On September 4, 1987, the bodies of Rosa Maria Casio and Karen Baker were found face down 50 yards apart. More than a month later on October 20th, police canine units found what would be the youngest victims, 14-year-old Dawn Marie Smith and 15-year-old Desiree Wheatley. 
Another canine unit discovered the fifth body identified as Angelica Frosto on November 3rd. And just when it appeared that the gruesome discoveries had ended, the body of 23-year-old Ivy Susanna Williams was found on March 14, 1988. Williams is also the first of the six victims to disappear. She's also the only one who a forensic anthropologist was able to determine how she died. Three stab wounds were found on her skeletal remains. Wood's attorneys don't dispute the discovery aspect of the case. They do, however, accuse police detectives of botching the investigation and targeting Wood as the only prime suspect. The final decision by the jury will most likely depend on not what the authorities said, but on the testimony of the rape victim, Wood's two former cellmates, and his sister, who were the cornerstones of this trial. Before the trial began, the court had thrown out the use of fiber evidence taken from Wood's truck that police said was found at Desiree's gravesite. DNA evidence was in its infancy in the 1990s and inconclusive. The case came down to Judy Brown, the prostitute who helped put Wood in prison for rape, and fellow convicts James Sweeney and Randy Wells, who said Wood told them he was the desert killer. At the time, Sweeney had been in and out of prison and was serving a 69-year sentence. Aguayo outlined the testimony of the two convicts and how the defense tried to poke holes in their statements. She starts off by talking about Sweeney's testimony. He took the stand to testify against his former prison cellmate, David Leonard Wood. Sweeney told jurors that beginning in the summer of 1988, he helped Wood draft a lawsuit against the El Paso Police Department for alleged civil rights violations. He says during that time, Wood confessed to Sweeney that he was responsible for the so-called Northeast Desert murders. Wood's attorneys argued that Sweeney's testimony is a violation of attorney-client confidentiality. Sweeney is a paralegal, but prosecutors said it's not uncommon for inmates to ask other inmates better versed in law for legal help. Prosecutors also called to the stand another former cellmate. Randy Wells, who is currently out on parole, testified Wood described to him how he buried the bodies in the desert. The defense contends the state purchased the testimony. A $25,000 reward was offered at about the time both men testified before a grand jury. That jury returned a six-count indictment against Wood in July of 1990. After two weeks of testimony, the Dallas jury found Wood guilty of capital murder. Here's an interesting detail. He was actually found guilty of killing Ivy Williams and at least one other victim, and therefore assumed to be responsible for all six deaths. Critics said it was clear that the jurors made leaps of logic, not caring that there was no physical evidence tying him to the victims, and that the case rested solely on the words of a sex worker with a drug problem and two convicts. Marcia, on the other hand, smiled for the first time since she got off the plane. They, they gave him the death penalty, which six girls, yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, that's right, you know. And I'm thinking, okay, well, this can't last too much longer now. <laughs> And here we are. Here we are 33 years later. He's still on death row. Wood has spent much of his time over the last 33 years filing appeals. The first came in 1995. 
but his conviction was upheld by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. That's the final stop for criminal cases in the state. Wood continued to proclaim his innocence, even telling KVIA news anchor Gary Warner during a prison interview in the year 2000 that the criminal justice system failed to uphold true justice by clearing those who've been wrongfully convicted. Wood, in a white prison jumpsuit, sat across from Warner divided by a thick glass partition. By this point, he had spent the last eight years on death row in Livingston, Texas, more than 800 miles east of El Paso. His gaze was intense, but dark circles under his eyes stood out on his pale face. The first voice you hear is that of David Leonard Wood. There's six dead girls out there. Some were young, some were not. I don't know, their, I only know their histories because of the paperwork I got. But I know that some of them were fairly young. I don't know what they did to anybody. But uh, obviously they deserve better than this. But thinking about my execution, sure, I'm angry. I'm real angry. If I'm going to be executed, at least I would like to have the chance to have every single thing heard. Courts are shooting us through the courts so fast we never stand a chance. People who are trying to help us never get a chance. When we have new evidence, they don't want to hear it. Do you think about an execution? Sure I do. Sure I do. I have fought this case. I have been to the brink of, of anger that I've never known before hatred that I've never known before, despair that I've never known before. And the point that I've gotten at is, is I've been locked up some, a, a lot of years in my life, but I'm still angry about if I get executed, then certain people on the police force in El Paso got away with this. And you're telling me now, if the day comes that you're executed, an innocent man is going to die? There's no doubt, yes, yes. I asked to speak with Wood for this podcast, but his attorney declined. The day was coming. Wood was scheduled to die by lethal injection on August 20th, 2009. Marsha and Sunday went to Huntsville to witness Wood's death, to mark the end of his life as the end of a horrific chapter in their own. The night before the execution, Marcia got a phone call from the Texas Attorney General's Victims Assistance Office. And she said they, they put a stay on his execution. I said, what? <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? She goes, no. I said, so when is it going to be? And she says, at that point, she says, I don't know. Seventeen years after his conviction, Wood had appealed on grounds that he was mentally disabled. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals said his claim should be vetted, especially since the U.S. Supreme Court bans the execution of mentally disabled convicts. I'm devastated, let me just say that, because I have no idea why they put a stay on it. But his attorneys were good. That's all I can say. They really got, got it going where they could protect him and keep this going forever. And that's what I'm afraid of. No, they're, they're not taking, and they're not even taking into consideration all the girls he killed. 
you know, it's like, well, they don't matter, but he does. And I'll never understand that one. I just will not understand that one at all. It took five years for that particular appeal to work its way through the legal system. In 2014, 22 years after Wood's conviction, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals rejected the claim. Marcia thought for sure Wood's fate was finally sealed and the date of his death would be set. And it has nothing to do with me having vengeance. It's like I promised Desi at her gravesite, I will find out who did this and they will be prosecuted. That was a promise, and I want to keep that promise. Another hurdle to fulfilling Marsha's promise to her daughter. In February of 2016, Wood's defense pursued a new avenue to clear him, asking a judge to test evidence for DNA with technology not available in 1987. Also, another ask of the court. KVIA reporter Darren Hunt was in the courtroom and also spoke to Marsha, who was, as usual, present at the hearings. This latest appeal of his death sentence, handed down 24 years ago, is based on the theory a DNA test could implicate a former friend of Woods, Sal Martinez, if a DNA profile can be developed and matched to stored evidence in the case. Clutching at straws, that's what they're doing. And anything that they can use to divert the attention away from Wood, delay tactics, even the judge is upset with their delay tactics. Visiting Judge Burt Richardson has not yet determined whether he will grant the request for further DNA testing, but he he has ordered the Attorney General's office to come up with a list of all the items available for testing by Monday. At that point, he plans to schedule another hearing, and you can expect Marsha Fulton to be there for her daughter. I'm just tired of every time I turn around, he's the one that gets all the breaks. Wood's attorney, Greg Weirchok, is adamant that more must be done to bring justice in this case. Urging the court to allow the DNA testing of more than 150 items of clothing, jewelry, and bodily remains of Karen Baker, Janet Gasio, Angelica Frausto, Don Smith, Desiree Wheatley, and Ivy Williams pointing out that previous testing of Smith's outfit, a yellow sunsuit found in her shallow grave, contained blood that didn't belong to Wood, that a scraping found under Frausto's fingernail was not sent to a lab, despite being in possession of the district attorney's office before his 1992 trial. Weirchok also slammed the state for relying on jailhouse informants to clinch the case, especially since Sweeney read all the news articles detailing the desert killings while helping Wood draft a lawsuit against the police department in 1988. The state's vehement opposition to DNA testing of additional items in Mr. Wood's case defies logic, Weirchok wrote in his motion to the judge. The state should act as ministers of justice, not just as advocates for convictions. 
Nearly five years have passed since the hearing, and it's unclear whether the visiting judge, Burt Richardson, has issued a ruling on this particular motion. To complicate matters, Richardson also sits on the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which would ultimately hear this case if either side appeals. However Richardson rules on the DNA testing request, it would end up before the appeals court, but he has already recused himself. But that leaves an even-numbered court to decide the outcome. Detective John Guerrero remains convinced he nabbed the right guy. But, you know, he can claim all he wants that he didn't do it, and he can, you know, pull all this BS, you know, from wherever. Um, there's no doubt about it. You know, I didn't find him guilty. The judge didn't find him guilty. He had his defense attorneys that, that presented, you know, a, a case. You know, the evidence was presented to the jury, and 12 people decided that he was the one. Guerrero will always associate Wood with the anger he felt as he helped excavate the bodies of six girls and women who didn't deserve to be discarded, robbed of their dignity and death. Even right now, I can close my eyes and I can see this little girl in the desert. I can, I can see her just as well as I can see you right now. You know, you've seen those movies where you, you these horror movies and, and the mouth is wide open like that, you know, and that's how she was. The immediate reaction is, I just wish I could beat the shit out of this asshole. But the ultimate goal is to bring justice to these, these, these people. And you know, people talk about closure and this and that and the other. You know, arresting a guy, even if he were to get, you know, injected tomorrow or next week or two weeks from now, that's not going to take the pain away from, from Mrs. Wheatley and the, the Casio family and all the other kids. And there'll never be any closure for the three little girls that are still missing. Because again, I'll tell you, Stephanie, over and over I'll tell you, there's no doubt that he did it. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt in Marsha Fulton's mind either. I don't have any problems which way he dies. What I have a problem with is if somebody decides they can let him out again. He will do it again. And that scares me more than anything. Don't care if the state puts him under, if God puts him under, I'm okay with that. It doesn't matter. I just don't want him out in the public doing this again. 33 years have passed since the day Marsha dropped off Desiree at school, watching Desiree turn and smile. 33 years since she's heard her daughter's voice. Now, Marsha lives alone in a mobile home park in Northeast El Paso. Her husband, Robert Fulton, the man she called her rock, during the most trying years of her life, died well over a decade ago. And in 2016, her daughter Sunday also passed away. For Mother's Day, I give them the flowers on their grave. I'm afraid that he's gonna outlive me. Yes, I have said that. And the people will say, don't say that, that's not gonna happen. <laughs> well, it's happening now, you know, and 
I'm not a young chicken anymore, <laughs> you know? I'm getting up there. Faced with the prospect of not seeing finality in this case, she instead focuses on keeping the memory of Desiree and the other victims alive. She holds up a slip of paper. I keep this in my purse. All the names of the girls. Every day I carry it with me. Because this is something I feel needs to have an ending and justice. They have these attorneys now that are out there trying to stop all executions, okay? And they will, they're fighting for his life. And I wish somebody had fought for Desi's life. For Desi, for Karen, for Dawn, from Rosa, to Ivy, to Angela. Who's fighting for them? That was left to me. One name she never uttered, David Leonard Wood. I guess I don't want to say his name and then have people think, oh, well, he did this, you know, he's famous. No. Uh, it doesn't consume me, no. By no means does this consume me because I'm not going to let him do that to me. He's not going to, he already took my daughter's life. He's not taking mine. Mm -mm. I'm going to live for them, and I'm going to live for me. The state had asked the court to set Wood's execution date for October 16, 2019, but that request went unheeded. Wood remains on death row indefinitely. ABC 7's Borderland Crimes is a podcast researched, produced, written, and edited by me, Stephanie Valle. Sound engineers are Chris Swan and John McMinn. Our news director is Brenda Dan the Swan. Stay tuned. Another episode is coming soon.